This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 84 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today I am joined by Hugh Grant, the 55-year-old British actor who is the undisputed king of the rom-com, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary, Love Actually, and many others, and who, following a years-long absence from the silver screen, has now returned to it in a very different sort of project, Florence Foster Jenkins, a drama in which he plays the protective husband of a terrible opera singer and for which he has won rave reviews. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about how Grant, a guy who graduated from Oxford and was headed toward postgraduate studies in art history, wound up instead an actor. How he adjusted or struggled to adjust to overnight superstardom, how he came to be so associated with one genre and how he feels about that, how the British tabloid press through phone hacking and other means has terrorized him and his family and how he's fought against it through the hacked off campaign, how stage fright, of all things, drove him away from acting for years, and what it was like getting back in the game opposite none other than the greatest film actress of all time, Meryl Streep. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Thank you so much for doing this, Hugh. And to begin with, we always ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, well, I was born next to a prison in West London, where actually my children have now been born as well. I I enjoyed going there the other day. My little girl was born. I took my son, and we went to look at the prisoners uh, while we were waiting for his (laughs) sister to come. Yeah, I pointed them out (laughs) looking out between the bars in uh, Wormwood Scrubs in London. My mum was a teacher in the um, what you would call public schools, yeah. what we call state school system, and my dad was an ex-soldier working in a carpets business. As a kid, were you involved with acting, or did that only come in university? No, no, no. I, I was always obnoxious, <laughs> show-off, doing imitations and silly voices and right. wanting to be the centre of attention. It's a classic story. <laughs> you said in another interview that I read to prepare for this, quote... 
Amateur acting was always a genuine pleasure. I had a real laugh doing plays at school and university. I genuinely loved the performing, the excitement, the bonding, the romances with the girl playing Masha, the cast parties, the bitching, everything. It seems like you loved actually the theater acting more than based on what I've heard <laughs> later on the film acting. Is that true? Well, there is some truth in that. But specifically, it was theater acting where it didn't really matter because it was only a school play. It was only going to be a three-day run of right. the play as opposed to six months. And it was one's first real close-up introduction to girls, if you were at an all-boys <laughs> school. So it had all kinds of bonus attractions. Right, of course. So you eventually go off to Oxford, I believe, with a scholarship. You were a really good student? Well, yes, to begin with, I was. I went off the rails. <laughs> but you go off there, and at Oxford, is it correct that your first film that you appeared in was actually sort of through the university's film program? No, the university doesn't have a f film program. It's too old-fashioned by a long chalk. <laughs> right. No, it just so happened that there was a postgraduate there, American, called Mike Hoffman, who's mm -hmm. gone on to make lots of films, and he was always interested in film, and he gathered up some money and borrowed some cameras and things and made a little student film and asked me to be in it. That's the film that uh, piqued the interest of some agents. But for you, coming out of that, did you feel all right, this is going to change my plans, or were you still imagining that your future was going to be in academia <laughs> or whatever else? I did. I was destined after Oxford to go to a place called the Courtauld Institute in London to do an MPhil in history of art. And it was during that summer between the two that this film got a screening and these agents said, do you want to be an actor? And I said, actually, no, I'm, I'm off to do more academics. And then I suddenly thought, actually... This could be fun for a year, and I have no money, and I could earn some money. Right. Then I'd go and do the degree. So I started acting, and one job turned into two, turned into 35 years. <laughs> I guess was the first really prominent part in James Ivory's film, Maurice? Yes, correct. And correct. for you, how did that come about? Because it's one thing to be doing you know, a, a small, sounds like quite a small film for Mike Hoffman, so that attracted some attention, And but next thing you're winning Best Actor at the Venice Film Festival, so can you connect the dots a little bit? Well, it came out of the blue. I'd sort of started life as an actor. I did theatre and little bits of TV and stuff, but my real focus was a comedy show called The Jockeys of Norfolk, which I did with two friends, and it was material we wrote, we performed, and we also started getting other jobs, writing for other shows, uh, writing radio commercials, mm -hmm. which we uh, produced and acted in as well. And this was quite a happy life. And the acting was all sort of less of an interest to me. And one day my agent rang and said, you've got this audition for a film called Morris. And I thought, I don't know. I think I've really, I'm more <laughs> interested in this other part yeah. of my life now. And my brother, who happened to be at home that day, is a banker, he was sick. He said, oh, don't be ridiculous. Go on, go to the audition and dress up nicely. And I did, and they very kindly gave me the part. And that did put me on a whole different path in in life because yeah. once you've done one relatively successful right. film you suddenly you've got a sort of ticket right so over those next few years before four weddings and a funeral you did films with ken russell roman polanski another one with james ivory remains of the day but yet everything i've read from around that time suggests that you weren't loving it it was you were <laughs> almost looking to get out of it is that correct no that's not quite Fair. <laughs> those, those are all excellent projects right. that I'm no, very glad I was right. in. Yeah. But I also did some very dodgy stuff at that time. Some really ridiculous sort of <laughs> mini-series and some uh, what we called Euro puddings, which were fashionable in those days where right. you'd have a, 
it would be a, a Spanish film, but with a very badly translated script into English, and then they get English actors to do it, and <laughs> they'd have French money, and the whole thing was chaos right. and made no sense at all. But quite fun to do because you right. you were doing it in the certain knowledge that the film would never get any kind of release anywhere. <laughs> Just a paycheck, right? Yeah. But the real turning point in your life, I guess it appears on the outside, would be the '94 Sundance Film Festival, where the festival opened with the world premiere of Four Weddings and a Funeral, and also included the U.S. premiere of Sirens. So I just wonder what you remember of that week in Park City. What I remember most vividly was arriving in Salt Lake City, which is where you land before you drive to Park City. And we actually had the world premiere of of Four Weddings at Salt Lake City in in a big multiplex. Wow. What we hadn't remembered was that this is a Mormon town, and our film started with the word fuck (laughs) seven times over. So by the time we were about two minutes into the film, half the audience had left. (laughs) So it was an inauspicious start. Right, right. But then once you were on the ground at the festival, probably surrounded by snow and all of that, and really the film was received so well, did you immediately notice a shift in the way that people in the business were responding to you? Oh, God, yes. (laughs) My favorite was a bloke who, um, about... A year before, in a very unfortunate incident in Los Angeles, when I was a completely unknown entity, my girlfriend's dog had bitten him very badly. <laughs> and he'd been really furious, right. you know, understandably, right. and threatening to sue and really quite aggressive about it. And then just after Four Weddings came out in America, I remember sitting by the pool at the Four Seasons, and a man with rather a beautiful mouth came up. And it was this guy who'd been terribly injured in the mouth by my girlfriend's dog. And suddenly he was so nice to me. Hey, man, you know, what are you up to? Let's make movies. And that is hilarious. I remember thinking this is very Hollywood. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Why do you think that you were initially drawn to that script and, and the filmmakers? Because at that time, Richard Curtis and Mike Newell weren't necessarily as familiar names as, as they are now. And is it just coincidental that it worked out that a part that you were so well-equipped to play came to you, or what was the origin story there? I thought it was a mistake because I was sent a script, and it was good. And I rang my agent, and I said, there's an error here. You've sent me a good script. Right. It happened again, I remember, with Jerry Maguire, and they said, yes, sorry, that is a mistake. It was meant to go to Tom Cruise. <laughs> that was later. Right. No, it was Four Weddings, and it, it was clearly a very funny script. And um, I went to the audition, and I thought, I can do this. I know this world, right. and I think I know these kind of jokes. And it was a surreal audition because it was at the Henson studio in London. So I was surrounded by Muppets. <laughs> and there were about 20 Muppets around me right. and about 40 Muppets looking at me oh as I auditioned. God. Plus director, producer and Richard Curtis. And it was Richard Curtis who looked the most miserable because <laughs> I was the exact opposite of what he'd imagined a character would oh be like. Oh, gosh. Well, so $5 million and 36 days later, you end up with the highest grossing British film to that point. And after that, though, you, you kind of paced your next few films. What, there were things that came out that you had done before That's that, right? That's right, yes, yes. But, I mean, there were three years before Notting Hill, right? There were lots of commitments I'd made before Four Weddings. Then they came out after Four Weddings, and whatever genre they were, yeah. they were all marketed as romantic comedies. <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you respond to the idea that clearly people were now looking at you for that genre, which you would help to make, you know, as popular as ever, were you happy to play those 
those sorts of parts, or were you bristling at the idea that they weren't coming to you for other things? No, I wasn't bristling. I was the same as I still am to this day. Literally, whatever is the script that most amuses me, I'll do it. And I'm not trying to think, oh, I want to do a thriller now or a deep drama now. It's just whatever is the best quality and tickles my fancy. And so just ended up being the case that those were often in that genre where yeah, Bridget Jones, Love Actually, I mean, you were, you were the master of this genre. Well, if you're talking about romantic comedy, I did end up doing more than I expected to of those. Have you wanted to return to more dramatic work like Morris or, or some of the stuff you did before this image of you as the rom-com go-to guy came about? Or have you been wanting a great dramatic script to come your way? No, not really. I think I've probably worked out after 20 years of doing it that perhaps my very favourite tone was one where there was comedy and a bit of drama going on simultaneously. I mentioned about a boy earlier, yeah, and I always yeah. felt that, that that fell into that category. And when I read Florence Foster Jenkins, I thought, oh, good, it's, we're in the same territory. Here. Right. In your view, what were or are your greatest strengths as an actor and also the, the things that you most wanted to work on over the course of your career? <laughs> well, uh, I suppose I'm not bad at knowing where the joke is yeah. and how potentially you might maximise it, or, you know, bring it out, and how to offset or cut sentimentality with a joke so that you get away with quite sentimental stuff without people realising it. I've had a good, I think, quite a good nose for that. Uh, of course, I'm not bad verbally. Yeah. That was my strength. <laughs> But what I dread is the sort of Juliette Binoche French film <laughs> shot where they just track in on you and you've got no lines and you just have to go from happy to crying. <laughs> to just emoting. Yeah, yeah, then I crap myself if that's what But I at have. the same time, physical aspects of your performances fueled a lot of the comedy, right? I mean, people certainly in response to Florence Foster Jenkins, you know, that's been a recurrent thing that they've commented about you and also about Simon Kelberg, who's you, some of the expressions are hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But over the course of your career, it seems like you can do a twitch or a, a look or whatever that where the physical aspect of it is pretty important. Well, I don't know. I, I think my very worst performances have been the, the, the muggy ones, the twitchy ones. So um, I'm not sure I entirely <laughs> <laughs> agree with that. All right. At what point did you decide you were kind of not enjoying film acting anymore? It seems like there was a point where over the years that you would hear either that you were thinking about <laughs> retiring or you wanted yeah. to retire. What, was, what brought that about? Well, it was two things, really. One was that I got this absurd stage fright attacks. They would just hit me in the middle of a film. They would only last a morning or something, but it was devastating. Uh, it would be some very simple scene. You'd rehearsed it perfectly, maybe shot the other guys close up, and they turned around on you, walk in there whistling, and suddenly, out of nowhere, you've got sweat shooting from your armpits and you can't remember your lines. And... These were terrible and embarrassing occasions, and you could almost never use the scene. You actually had to cut the scene from the film. The dread of that and having to uh, continually farm my own emotions, even on Florence Foster Jenkins, day after day, you know, I better go for a run this morning, and I better take these herbal calmers yeah. now, you know. It's, it's a pain in the arse. What do you think is bringing those about? Because you had gone many years without that, right? Yeah, the first one hit me on Notting Hill, I remember. Oh, yeah. And I, I really don't know where it suddenly came from. Um, just bam. Yeah. I don't know where. So that was, uh, that was a factor. Mm -hmm. and, and also I kept telling myself I was going to um, go and write my novel. I've only ever written half of it. Well, yeah. that could, is it still, it's still in progress. Though. Yeah. I know that during the 
period when you have been in retirement, you were very active in some other causes that were important to you. One of them, I wonder if you could explain for folks, what is Hacked Off and why is that <laughs> something that you've given so much of your time and energies to? I'll tell you what it's not, okay. because a lot of people have a misconception about what it is. It's nothing to do with the plight of so-called celebrities and in the, in the spotlight of the media. That's not something that particularly interests me. What it was, what it is, mm-hmm. is two things. British newspapers, for various historical reasons, have become incredibly powerful. Many people believe actually run the country. There's a few newspapers with very powerful owners, powerful editors, basically dictate our public policy. They pretty much choose our prime ministers and help choose uh, a lot of our important public policy decisions, mm-hmm. wars and so on. And I've always thought that was wrong and that although you never want a state-run media, it's equally bad to have a media-run state. Right. So it's that. And it's also the fact that these newspapers became so powerful that they were living really above the law. And that came very much to the forefront, became very evident in 2011 when it was exposed that British newspaper, the News of the World, had been hacking the phones of people like victims of the 7th of July bombings and soldiers' families who'd been, soldiers had been killed in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, and most famously, this young girl, Millie Dowler, who'd been abducted and was subsequently murdered, and they'd hacked her phone, and for various technical reasons, that had given false hope to her family, who thought she was still alive. Mm-hmm. And this created um, such suddenly uh, an outcry from the British public that that's when the organization I'm involved with, Hacked Off, became an entity and campaigned for a big public judicial inquiry into the practices of the British press. Because they were also, though, harassing movie stars like yourself, right? It was not just... But I think to a certain extent that comes with the territory. And so I've never really made a big fuss about that. I I mean, I object to... Them harassing the innocent people around right, one, right. an 87-year-old father or a two-year-old child yeah. photographed naked on the beach and published in a national newspaper. I think it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've tried never to complain about the fate of the actual performer because I think when you become a performer, you, there's always going to be a little more attention than you than you might always like. So we actually have hacked off, in a sense, to thank for Florence Foster Jenkins or your involvement in it, right? Because isn't that how you cross paths with Stephen Frears. Well, I, I'd crossed paths with him on aeroplanes and things before, but yeah, he, he was one of many supporters. One of the arguments of our opponents, these um, scary newspapers, is that any kind of reform of the law to make them behave more decently is an infringement of um, freedom of speech. So we took out a full-page ad in national newspapers saying this was no danger to freedom of speech and signed by every top creative person in Britain wow. from novelists to playwrights to screenwriters to film directors to artists and one of those was Stephen Frears and he came to the launch of that thing and that's when he started mumbling about let's let's do a film. (laughs) And your initial response was what? Because you were pretty happily out of this right? Well yes uh, I was I was very busy doing doing the politics and stuff and I didn't know if he was serious and then yeah to my great astonishment an envelope arrived, and I thought, well, it's going to be embarrassing if I don't like it. And it was brilliant. Yeah. It was not only a brilliant script, but it had an amazing part for me, plus Stephen Frears, plus Meryl Streep. So I had to do it. <laughs> what was that first day back on set like? I mean, I know that even within the period that has been referred to as your retirement, you would occasionally do 
things. Yeah. And one of them, I, I have to say, music and lyrics, I really liked a lot. And I know that you did Cloud Atlas, which that was a very divisive, interesting mm-hmm. choice. But for you to now be back in a basically co-leading role for a major director, mm. major studio, all of this, what was, the, what was that like? Yeah, I was scared. It took a lot of herbal rescue <laughs> remedy to get me over the starting line. But once I was over it, in many ways, it was a treat because it was a very interesting part. Frears is a remarkably generous director in that he, he trusts you and that you get on with it. People were very encouraging to me. Performing with the greatest female actress possibly of all time is no hardship. No. <laughs> Things go better. You know, if you play tennis with Rafa Nadal, you play better you tennis. Get better, right. yeah. Now, what is it, working opposite her and perhaps watching her in scenes independent of you, what is it that makes her so good? Well, I think it's two things. One is raw natural talent, which no one can really explain in life. It's just there in Leonardo da Vinci or Lionel Messi or Meryl Streep. It's just (laughs) an unnatural gift. But the other is an extraordinary, uh, almost scary dedication to her craft and above all to being emotionally true in each particular moment. She once told me that after a martini. She said, <laughs> she said it's like her religion. And that was very noticeable on the set. Uh, she, if it was a happy scene, Meryl came to the set happy. If it was a sad scene, she came sad. An angry scene, she came angry. <laughs> and she would got herself always in the right place. You once said in one of the profiles that I read to prepare for this, quote, the people who wanted me were always the money people, much more than the important directors. I suppose if I had any unit of success, any metric... It was how much money a film made. I was never in that whole other film world, which is to do with prizes, close quote. Now, this was certainly a top director working with top people in a movie that I don't know how many people know the name Florence Foster Jenkins, so it wasn't about let's find the most commercial uh, thing to do here. But so for you, was it sort of extra gratifying to know that here you were given a chance to just sort of spread your wings and, and just act? Well, the quote you mentioned wasn't a complaint in any way. It just happened to be the way my career went. And I am one of those people, rather like Richard Curtis, who argues that it's actually equally difficult to make a big commercial success than it is to make a film that pleases the intelligentsia of North London. Uh, Some people argue it's harder, in fact. So I, I, I don't have any complaints. But you're certainly right that this particular film, Florence Foster Jenkins, although we hope it's also commercial, yeah, yeah. has some of the ingredients that you might associate more with a sort of you know, artistic success. Just following up on your point about how often comedy is undervalued in this mm. community, would you be in favor? Do you think there should be a separate category at the Oscars in the way there is at the Golden Globes or some of these other things where just, you know, you think about the people, some of the greatest performers, the people who are beloved, Decades after their heyday, Jerry Lewis, people like this, Cary Grant, never won an Oscar. Should we do something more to appreciate them while they're doing it? Well, perhaps, perhaps. I mean, maybe the interesting question is why do people assume that deep and dark and miserable (laughs) is better than light and amusing and uplifting? Well, it must be, that must be what we deep down think is the default setting for human existence (laughs) and therefore somehow more truthful and that if people are dancing about like Fred Astaire or being charming like Cary Grant it's it's a big lie or something I don't know (laughs) but I I I mean just from personal experience those things that lighter stuff I mean I know it's a cliche but I happen to believe it's true it's bloody difficult Mm -hmm. and incredibly technical 
and when you actually get to do a bit of drama, although it's far from easy, at least in terms of results, many, many shades of grey can be correct, whereas with comedy it tends to be black or white, it's binary, it either makes people go ha 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 or it doesn't, and that's pretty scary. That's a great point. So at this point, as you kind of take in the very positive response that this film has already generated, what's your outlook for the future for yourself? Are you actually back? Are you going to be acting (laughs) regularly? Or is this actually the exception to the rule? It's been so strange, actually, just being back here in Hollywood after all the... Fascinating insights. Like, I I didn't know my agents had a new building. Apparently they've had it for eight (laughs) years. But I don't know quite what will happen now. I... uh, did enjoy enormously making this film, Florence, and I think I got a bit better at acting doing it. And when you improve, it's like when you improve your serve at tennis, you want to play again. Mm -hmm. So I feel slightly like that. I I hope you do, and thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate (laughs) it. Oh, thanks, Scott.